Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Candidates of color made history nationwide this month, including right here in Boston. Michelle Wu is now the first female and person of color elected as Boston's mayor. But local voters also gave Boston City Council new powers to override some of the mayor's decisions. Plus, Republicans took home some big election wins, including governor of Virginia. Is this a bad omen for Democrats in 2022? We're spending the full hour with the mass politics profs. Joining me now, Erin O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hi, Erin. Hey, great to be here. Glad to have you. Luis Jimenez, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Welcome back, Luis. Hello. And Rob DeLeo, Associate Professor of Public Policy at Bentley University. Thanks for joining us, Rob. Thanks for having me. All three are contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog. Well, let's jump right in with the obvious. Michelle Wu, breaking a 200-year history of white men as mayors of Boston. She becomes the first woman mayor and the first woman of color elected mayor because Kim Janey was acting mayor leading up to this point. Here's newly elected Boston Mayor Michelle Wu speaking after winning the election. One of my sons asked me the other night, if boys can be elected mayor in Boston. They have been, and they will again someday, but not tonight. On this day, Boston elected your mom because from every corner of our city, Boston has spoken. We are ready to meet this moment. We are ready to become a Boston for everyone. Let's get some responses from you all, other than it's historic. What do you have to to say about what this may mean now, later, bigger, or smaller? I'll start with you, Erin. Well, it is historic. Part of what I think so exciting about her victory is how resounding it was. I mean, it looks like she won by about 28 points over another candidate of color and female. Um, But nonetheless, I'm so impressed by Michelle Wu. She ran against four quality candidates, truly quality candidates, and she smoked them. (laughs) And she smoked them ticker to tape. This was a historic race that was kind of boring. The turnout issue, of course, concerns me. But 
overall, I think it's a good day for Boston. And I think like Michelle Wu said, she's not going to be the first. There will be male mayors again, but I don't think there'll be male mayors again for uh, quite a while. The city council, the talent, the pipeline that's coming from the city council is decidedly female. Hmm. All right, Louise, I think that she was able to pull together a cross-racial coalition as part of her base. Am I misreading that? No, at least from what I've seen, she did. And I think one of the things that make this so exciting or so interesting beyond the historic part is that there seems to be a new coalition. So what's uh, really interesting about this is that it's not just the historic part, but also there seems to be a new coalition that she was able to tap into, not just Asian Americans, of course, uh, also Latinos, there seem to be some of them, younger people, and then some of the newcomers that came to Boston, some of the uh, professionals that she appealed to, which is different, I think, than previous uh, mayors had done. So that's really interesting. And it's a question as to whether that's going to continue going forward after, you know, after her or how she's able to be able to sustain it in future elections. And Rob DeLeo, there was a very definite difference in terms of issues on the table. You're the policy guy. So she was really clear that climate change, even though her opponent, Anissa Saibi-George, said that's not something the mayor can do. But Michelle Wu said, yes, we have to deal with this at every level. And I'm going to look at climate change. I'm going to look at free public transportation and housing stabilization, as far as I'm concerned, begins with rent control. How important were these issues, do you think, to pushing her to a big victory? Well, I think what she did really well, as as well as any state politician that I've seen in a while, is she managed not to just talk about those sort of larger, grandiose, progressive goals, endorsing the Green New Deal, uh, rent stabilization, policing. But what struck me was she also was able to simultaneously talk about ways in which she would keep the trains running on time. So the night of the election, um, before she had uh, even left the stage, she referenced the fact that one of her first priorities was going to be to help the city prepare for winter snow removal. And now to a lot of voters, you know, it may not be as exciting as the Green New Deal, but that's what governing is about. And so from an electoral perspective, her ability to sort of merge those larger national topics that are going to resonate with the diverse coalition that Luis just mentioned as well as those issues that, for those of us who live in Boston, like myself, really are a quality of life issue, and quite frankly, uh, uh, may have been some of the issues that allowed Republicans in other states to sort of uh, uh, gain some momentum off of, I, I, think, I think was really quite impressive and central to her, her victory. Let me add to that, that she, I think, did really well the symbolic part too, uh, not, you know, the substantive, but also the symbolic, like, for instance, writing the T the next day, right mm. after she won. I think that's she did that very well. Let me ask about the negative attacks that came late in the campaign. Obviously, that didn't stop her from winning. But I was interested in the nature of the attacks and um, also the, the lateness of them, as I said. So this is a clip of an attack ad aimed at Michelle Wu, paid for by Bostonians for Real Progress Independent Expenditure PAC. 
And the claim was that Wu got a sweetheart deal on her Roslindale home. And that, by the way, has been proven inaccurate. Let's take a listen. She got a sweetheart deal. Michelle Wu bought her first home with the help of real estate investors who also funded her campaign. They paid for half of the house. Next, the investors sold their half to Wu while she was city council president. Then the investors got their big high-rent Boston development project approved. Guess that's Wu's version of affordable housing. Now, I, you know, I have to say, I'm pretty well informed on these things. I saw that ad and I said, is that true? I um, and it came so late in the in the process. I know we've talked about negative ads in general, but I wondered what you all thought about this particular ad. There were others, but this one I thought was the others went uh, were oppositional to her policies. This was quite personal. I mean, I thought that, well, A, I always love the music in a negative head. Like, you know, you could be like, uh, the screen image could be Bambi and the negative ad music makes me go, they're wrong, they're bad. Um, but decidedly more substantively, I, I think, uh, listen, when you're down in the polls by 2530, even though this is a pack ad, that that's when they're going to hit you hard. So part of me says, this is politics, get tough. Uh, another part of me says the ad was smart in that um, it hits Boston in the sweet spot. It's so expensive to live in Boston and affordable housing is was one of the major issues of the campaign. So if they can make it look like Michelle Wu took an underhanded deal for a home that many of us, most Bostonians would absolutely love to live in. It was a smart ad in in that sense. I'm not saying it was necessarily ethical, but I am saying when you're losing by that many points, you're going to throw everything at the wall you can. I'm actually surprised more negative ads didn't come in at the end. And whoever did this ad did their homework to know that um, housing in Boston, affordability, and then developers, the developers who get to come in and gut a neighborhood. I think it was effective on that end, but it obviously wasn't effective last Tuesday. What do you all think, uh, Louise? I agree with Aaron that um, this type of ad is is actually relatively common, especially in mayoral races. That you know somehow people have gotten deals or something because of uh, insider knowledge or something. But one of the reasons why I think this ad didn't probably didn't make much of a difference is because it's hard to argue or it's hard to say that you know somebody's getting a sweet deal and they're taking advantage of something while their policy is that they're going to have rent control. Like that's the big thing that she Mm -hmm. was proposing. Right. So, you know, people might've heard of that and said, well, okay, great. But, but she's the one proposing rent control. And and that's popular, I think, with the people that can't afford housing. So it sounds like the opposite, right? Why would developers, like if she's getting this deal from developers, she would not be for rent control. Mm -hmm. She would be for, you know, something else. So. You want to add something, Rob? Yeah, I, I, you know, like Aaron, I, I wasn't surprised by these types of ads because, like them or not, they they tend to work. Um, and so at that point in the race, I think Anissa Sabi George was just trying for a, a, a hail mary pass, and this was a bit desperation. She did also sort of set up this ad during the last debate, if you recall, bringing up this issue as well. So in that respect, I think it was it was pretty queued up. 
I just want to be clear. That's the pack. She has nothing to do with the pack. So, and she disavowed packs well. in the in the race. You all can say whatever you. But I'm just I, these are the facts. Yeah. Okay. Yes, true. Okay. But it is part. It, it's also out of the um, uh, Republican playbook a little bit that you hit your opponent on the um, in the places that you yourself are most weak. Mm. And Anissa Sabi George. Her husband and, you know, the, the amount of properties he owns and the condition of some of those properties to renters had become an issue in the race. Honestly, I think that's a big a bit gendered to go after the candidate spouse. But when it's on housing, I'm a little bit mixed about his properties worth $54 million. So um, that's an ad that if the race was decidedly tighter, Michelle Wu would have made a, a, a bigger deal of that. Mm. All right, let's move on to the pipeline. That's what people are describing it as in the new city councilors and actually some of the old ones that are still <laughs> that uh, won seats again. First top two in the at-large seats are Michael Flaherty and Julia Mejia, and they were both incumbents. I want people to remember that Julia Mejia won by one vote the first time. So I think this is quite amazing that she's number two across the city after Michael Flaherty, who's been on the council for many, many years. And then there are many other people from various neighborhoods that are interesting, including the first, I think, Muslim and first African immigrant elected, that's Tanya Fernandez Anderson. She'll be taking over the the district that was uh, currently represented by acting mayor Kim Janey. Kendra Hicks taking over the seat now held by retiring Matt O'Malley. Uh, that was a very contentious race because there were some accusations of racism in it. And the first Haitian-American to serve on the council came in number three, I think. And then Erin Murphy, after her, is a school teacher, similar to Anissa Saiby-George, but she teaches kindergarten and she's a special education coordinator. They were three and four. So anyway, there's an interesting mix. So what do you think? Go ahead, Rob. <laughs> sure. I, you know, before Luis uh, uh, jumps in on this, him and Aaron have a have a book they're working on on um, Massachusetts exceptionalism. I'm, pl- I'm plugging it, it for them now. Um, and on Tuesday, <laughs> I, I actually think um, that we got a healthy dose of Boston exceptionalism, certainly compared to, to some other parts of the country. In New York, for example, they elected a, a fairly centrist mayor in Eric Adams. Of course, in Virginia, you have Youngkin winning. Um, the close race in New Jersey. But here in Boston, if you look at the the city council, with few exceptions, I think in many respects you see this grassroots progressive agenda um, validated with some of these candidates. You've listed a few of them, but I think, you know, Kendra Hicks, Tanya Anderson, these are candidates who organized very well at the grassroots level also had endorsements from some of the major progressive players in the state warren ayanna presley sonia chang diaz and so in many respects i think this symbolizes uh, just how much the progressive agenda has taking hold in the boston city council uh, just a reminder, Frank Baker, who's been there quite a long time from certain sections of uh, Dorchester, is no progressive at all. And he, <laughs> he managed to uh, beat his opponent very handily, as he said himself, two to one. So that I just want to raise that. Go ahead, Louise. Well, I want to say two things. Uh, one, I'm not actually surprised about Julia Mejia, Julia Mejia at all because she. I was at several events uh, in East Boston and very small like community 
events and she was there and I was really surprised to see her. And so it just seemed to me, at least from what I had seen, that uh, she was very attentive to the community and to her constituents. So that makes sense to me that she, she, you know, after winning by one vote, she gained a lot more. And the other two things, Tanya Anderson, who was at one point an undocumented person, shows the power of organizing and also the new Haitian American. Haitian Americans in general in, the, in this country, but also especially in Massachusetts, have this kind of a complicated relationship to other groups because of their, well, their blackness, but, you know, they come from Latin America. And so they, they have a complicated relationship with other Latinos and uh, they themselves sometimes don't think of themselves as Latinos. And so there's a complicated relationship that often leads to problems, competition, um, sometimes is you know, it's difficult to organize. And so the fact that uh, I'm not exactly sure what coalition she was able, Lejeune was able to, to put together. But clearly, she, she did this quite well. So I was very impressed. But there's a reason she's the first Haitian-American mm-hmm. uh, that it took this long for, for someone like that to get elected. And, and we should say her, her whole name is Ruth Z. Louis-Jean. And here's another fact that may make this even more interesting in that Boston is the, has the third largest Haitian-American population in the U.S. So it's kind of interesting that she's the first on, on the city council. And Aaron, you haven't weighed in. You know, I mean, the first thing I thought to myself is Frank Baker is serving now with the Democratic Socialist oh. <laughs> uh, on that city council, right? Yeah. And <laughs> I, I, I moved here in 2007, and that city council was so emblematic of how many people felt about Boston and where the power centers were in Boston. It was almost all white men. And the transition at that city council has happened rather rapidly. You know, Ayanna Presley got it, really got it started. This generation of Michelle Wu, of Kim Janey, of Andrea Campbell, that next, uh, you know, layer came in. And now, you know, somebody like Hicks is serving with Frank Baker. Frank Baker is the odd person out when for years it was Ayanna Presley who was an odd person out on that council. And that council is the feeder position now to the mayor's office, perhaps to the state Senate, Lydia Edwards, if she wins the state Senate seat, she's not going to stop there. She has eyes on, you know, the Senate presidency. So I'm really struck about how changing Boston, that's been a narrative since I've moved here. Boston has changed when it comes to who it is willing to elect, the ideological diversity that it's willing to elect, and these gradations. It's not just a first Black individual and that Black individual has to cover the entire Black community. No, there is like nuance in terms of getting individuals that are Haitian, democratic socialist, et cetera. So I think I think the city council will be studied. This transition in the city council will be studied for years and years when it comes to Boston politics. Pretty interesting. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are three of the Mass Politics profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Louise Jimenez of UMass Boston, and Rob DeLeo of Bentley University. We're analyzing the outcomes of recent local and national elections. All right, let's move over to look at uh, some of the results from other cities and towns. I guess the one that might catch everybody's eye because Joe Cartatone was uh, mayor there forever, it seemed, in Somerville, and he's decided not to run. And he's uh, been replaced now by 
Katjana Ballantine. I, you know, know little about her except that both candidates in that race, the other person was uh, an African immigrant, Mr. Imba, and she won. So that's more women power in the mayor's seats in uh, Massachusetts, Erin. Definitely. You know, I mean, it was an uneven, well, it was a great night for uh, women in Massachusetts because Boston, I know all my Western Mass friends don't like to hear this, but it's just shows Boston is the hub of Massachusetts. So like that, <laughs> uh, you know, I know, I know, but Michelle Wu, it, 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 like that makes a big difference. But when we get into these smaller towns, you know, cities, but smaller towns, you know, you had Yvonne Spencer lose in Framingham. You had this woman win in Somerville. So what happened at Boston Mayoral and what happened in Boston City Council is the big takeaway. But these other mayoral races split in different ways, you know, in Framingham, in Somerville. So it goes to show you it is the case when women run, they are just as likely to win. But that also means they're just as likely to lose. Mm. And the juxtaposition of what happened in Framingham and Somerville uh, speak to that. I'll also add when women run, they do so with thicker resumes. Mm. Well, um, I, I'll just note that there are two <laughs> incumbent mayors who are women who won new terms. Ruth Ann Fuller of Newton and Kim Driscoll of Salem both one. Were there any races outside of Boston, some of these uh, mayoral races that interested you, Louise? Uh, I wasn't following it as closely, but uh, there did seem to be several where the incumbent lost, right? How many? I, I think it was like three or four mm-hmm. uh, where the incumbent lost. And that it, I think that speaks to the larger issue, not just the demographics that we we're talking about or that you mentioned uh, with immigrants and, and different Black candidates and, and women candidates and so on, but also that there seemed to be some, at least in some places, an anti-incumbency feel. And it's, it's not clear. I, I think it's too early to tell where that's coming from or what exactly fed that, but there did seem to be people that were quite unhappy with uh, with their incumbents. Rob, I know that how mayors treated COVID in terms of you know treatment analysis, communication with their staff and with the whole community played a part in some of these decisions because a lot of voters expressed unhappiness with the mayors they had or felt that the ones they had did a good job. Absolutely. I think that was a, a theme that, that actually played out a, across the country. I think this was an election where mayors who failed to attend to local issues, be it, you know, COVID-related restrictions or, uh, more importantly, issues like education, were in hot water during this election cycle. I want to circle back to the Framingham race because I, I think that was actually an interesting one and perhaps a, a cautionary tale for new mayors in the state. You know, Yvonne Spicer had a very strained relationship with the new city council in Framingham, and her challenger, Charles Sisiski, challenged her basically on the premise that he was going to do a better job building bridges with that city council. And so I I do think voters are quite attentive to hyper-localized issues at the moment, and I think that mayors who, who fail to attend to that Um, may find themselves in trouble again. I just want to reiterate Rob's point with, I have to make up for my last comment, an example from Western Massachusetts Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, uh, and Westfield. 
uh, Westfield, Massachusetts, you know, um, old industrial city, uh, the, the sitting mayor uh, lost. A, he's a Republican and he had another Republican challenge him. So these were two Republicans facing off in a city that has elected Republicans, but has more of Democrats in terms of when you're looking at enrolled voters. Rarely in Massachusetts do we see two Republicans facing off in a general election for a major city. And the incumbent Don Hummison lost in part because of the, the individual who ran against him was uh, a former state cop and uh, teacher criminal justice at the local college. And that Republican said, we need a healthier city. We need to do better on COVID. And I'm going to fix traffic. Talk mm. about hyper-local, mm. but also uh, voters made Don Hummison pay for not doing the micro work of politics on COVID. I don't know if that's a fair assessment, but that was certainly the voters' assessment. Mm. And I want to circle back to pick up Rob's point about changing power balance in the Framingham race. Well, that could happen in Boston yep. because Boston had three ballot questions. One was binding, and the binding one was to allow the city council to have more power. <laughs> so just as Michelle Wu comes in in this historic role, her power is diminished potentially. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a terrible optic, right? Uh, the, the, a female mayor finally wins, and now she's much more um, encumbered by the city council. And I, too, I think the dynamic between the city council and the mayor is going to be fascinating to watch. The city council, uh, especially the women we've been talking about, have been largely aligned and pushing back at the Walsh administration. But now one of their own is in office, but the city council doesn't want to be a weak city council anymore. They got a question one passed. So I think a lot of us, I totally agree, Callie, that watching the relationship between Mayor Wu and city council um, is going to be some growing pains. And, you know, ask Kim Janey how the city council treats a new mayor. Well, I personally, I read this as a, a kind of directive at at acting mayor Kim Janey, actually, that it grew out of uh, some of the actions that she was taking while acting mayor. And the, some of the city council members were quite vocal in saying she did not have unilateral power to do that and they didn't appreciate it. And so then I think that's right, but up. they wanted to do it. They yeah. wanted to do it to Marty Walsh. Okay. But he was too strong. Gotcha. Um, uh -huh. And, you know, one of the takeaways from, you know, Kim Janey, the sisterhood did not support her once she became mayor. They viewed her as jumping the line and made her pay for it. I'm, I'm honestly surprised that Janey endorsed Wu. But that's why politicians are better people than me. <laughs> I'd be like, I took that personally. That hurt me. <laughs> um, well, but, uh, yeah. So let me ask this question then, because uh, Michelle Wu came from the city council. She spent quite a bit of time there. Does that give her more time than Kim Janey? Does that give her an edge even in a new diminished power role, potentially, Rob? I would say yes. She, I think, you know, understanding sort of the parliamentarian and political dynamics of navigating the city council uh, uh, certainly gives her an edge. I, I think she also clearly has a, a, a mandate coming out of this election. So I think there's going to be a window of time here where she can start to move on those issues that she flagged in her campaign. So that, that obviously differentiates her from acting Mayor Janey. 
Louise, do you do you think that she may be able to manage the city council a little bit better in terms of that this new relationship they're about to have based on this binding ballot question? Well, it, I mean, Erin pointed out that, it, you know, she's one of them and that they have uh, a lot in common and the sisterhood and all of this. I, I, I think actually I'm on the opposite side. I think that uh, once you start dividing power like this and you shift power centers, I think naturally uh, people start to have more disagreements. Now, whether that's going to lead to problems and so on, it, I, it's, it's too early to tell. Uh, but I would not be surprised if, um, you know, if there was more butting of heads and things like this, and maybe even uh, a bad relationship if, you know, inevitably what's going to happen is there's going to be disagreements about the budget or, you know, I don't know, something, some issue that's going to come up that the mayor can't do, that they don't have power to do because of money, because of whatever, and then the council will, you know, stop it or, or, or be unhappy with it. You see this in just about every level of politics. So I, I, I would expect that there would be more, more, pro- more problems. Now, I think in general, this is a good thing because it is better to have transparency. It is, in my opinion, it is better to have public discussions about, you know, the budget and this sort of thing, and that these things can be seen. But nonetheless, I, I do think, like Aaron said, that there's going to be some growing pain. So we'll see where this goes. There are three ballot questions. One had to do with a electric substation in East Boston, which was, and this was non-binding, but 83% of voters said they didn't want it. But I want to focus on the other one, where 79% of Boston voters said they supported an elected school committee. Again, this is non-binding. But what does that mean for Wu? She can read like we can, that a lot of people <laughs> want want an elected school committee. So does she move to do that or... What's the next step in this? Um, I'll start with you, Louise. That's a great question. I, I'm, I'm thinking, what would I do if I, if I was her? I mean, it, it, well, two things. One, just because people say they want it, it doesn't. We can't measure the intensity by which they want it in terms of other issues, right? So they want it. Would they be really happy if, if, if who did it or not? How much would a political win would that be? It's hard to tell, right? It would be just be just because of a of a, a question. We don't know. Um, but just in terms of if you wanted to do it, I, I think democracy in this case is, is a good thing. You do want people that are represented, especially with school committees, given what, you know, the discussion we're having nationwide. So if I was her, I, I do think it would be, I would try to, to, to make this happen just because people seem to want it. And, and it would be, I, I think it would be an easy thing or it would be an easy way to say, see, I'm listening to people and that sort of thing. Uh, but it's hard to say whether, I mean, these things can can come back uh, in a negative way too, right? It, they could come back to bite her. So it's hard to say. We just it's it's hard to to read the future, and it would just depend on on how she reads it, whether uh, she would do it or not. Rob, practically speaking, if she decides to do it, what do you say to the people there? Thanks. See you later. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how this works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's already. She's already signaled that she's going to look into reforming the school committee uh, in Boston. So I think it is something that is on her agenda. I I would also add that not having uh, an elected school committee makes Boston somewhat of an outlier. Most communities do. Oh, it's the Um, only community. With the exactly. Yes. Okay. So, so, so yeah. I think that. So I think that she's in a position where she doesn't have much of a choice, and and it, it is 
you know, it would be strange for her not to, to make good on that promise. Uh, and Aaron, I think that's right. I, I mean, she doesn't want to be on the side of uh, no democracy. <laughs> I'm against democracy, right? Um, but I, I think it is an interesting sort of transition. As I understand it, the appointed commission came to be in part because individuals of color couldn't win uh, seats on the school board. So it, it was a way to diversify. But thankfully, as we've seen with the city council, that's no longer the case. Uh, I take Louisa's point seriously that if you ask voters, do you want more democracy or less, they usually say more. But how intense those beliefs are and if they really understand the nuances of a school committee, that's a different question. But if I'm uh, Michelle Wu, this is easy. I'm going to follow voters. Hmm. Okay. well, there's all kinds of stuff to, to parse from who won and who didn't and and the trends that we see in Boston. And um, I'm very interested to see where this goes and how she is able to function given her new limited set of powers uh, vis-a-vis this binding uh, resolution that uh, I don't think a lot of people were paying attention to it as all the other stuff was going on. Anyway, coming up, there's more insight and analysis from the Mass Politics Profs. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're continuing our discussion with three members of the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Louise Jimenez of UMass Boston, and Rob DeLeo of Bentley University. Let's pick up where we left off. I'm going to shift now to national politics. And of course, the biggest news from many perspectives is that Glenn Youngkin won as governor of Virginia, defeating Terry McAuliffe. Here's newly elected Governor Glenn Youngkin celebrating after his win. He's the first Republican elected governor of Virginia since 2009. Together, together, we will change the trajectory of this Commonwealth. And friends, we are going to start that transformation on day one. There is no time to waste. Our kids can't wait. We work in real people time, not government time. Now, for people who don't follow this quite closely, why was this such a big deal? I'll start with you, Erin. 
Yeah, it's a big deal because Virginia has been trending blue and trending blue uh, hard. So people were surprised. You know, I used to live in Virginia when I lived there in Newport News, the Tidewater region. That was a red state. That was a solidly red state. You know, it's, it was the capital of the Confederacy. So I, I think I, I think some of this is just overconfidence on Democrats' parts that, you know, because Virginia trended so strongly in one way that that would stay. It's contested terrain. It's contested territory, especially when um, Youngkin is running in part on getting critical race theory out of the schools, even though critical race theory is not in the schools. That's not subtle. That's not a dog whistle. That is straight up racial cues. So uh, I think this one didn't surprise me nearly as much as the closeness in New Jersey, but I also think Democrats are getting a taste of what Republicans felt when those two Senate seats went blue in Georgia. Or, you know, we had our own Scott Brown incident <laughs> here in Massachusetts. So some of these anomalies happen, and it shows us that the voters are a lot more complicated than, you know, the macro statistic uh, statistics that we tend to put them in. So, Rob, lots of analysis about how he managed to play different groups and play policies in different groups. So in sort of hard right arenas, he's critical race theory all the time. Again, it does not exist in Virginia, never was. So I don't know what he's canceling day one of his because there's nothing. It's not there. Um, And then for others, we speak to sort of of the suburbs and people not quite as hard, right? He downplayed those kind of rough issues, went for like the, the school board thing is really, you know, what he was was playing up to with them, the parents' rights, all of that. Um, this is interesting in a piece by uh, from, I think this is the Washington, no, the New York Times. They pointed out that there was a hidden mic at one point and he was caught confiding to a liberal activist that he had to downplay abortion to court independent voters. So, you know, he was, yeah, I mean, this is what politicians do this. I'm not saying anything different, except that it was very successful for him in this way. Um, and it was all about certain issues. Uh, I agree. I think that's uh, 100% right. And I, I think what was problematic for, for Terry McAuliffe is he, he really let Glenn Youngkin control this narrative and push the narrative to these hyper-localized issues. And I think, as you pointed out, you know, education was an issue where Glenn Youngkin could pivot to both talk to the Trump uh, uh, base of the party and then more uh, centrist uh, Republicans. I think at the same time, one of the lessons that comes out of this uh, for for Democrats is they've spent a lot of the last year talking about what they haven't been able to accomplish. So if we look at the the Biden agenda, so much of the narrative around the the, the these two bills in Congress is what is getting cut, what's getting left out of these items, instead of what is it that you're going to do uh, to make life better for everyday uh, Americans. And I think uh, for Glenn Youngkin, education was that vehicle that allowed him to sort of catch fire among people at a local level. In addition to that, Louise, there was a lot of discussion, and this has played out in other parts of the country, about the fact that uh, Terry McAuliffe was probably not the one to have run, that he was a bad candidate and he shouldn't have run. And there were, in fact, a couple of black women, young black women, 
a little bit more progressive, he's considered moderate, who were were interested in getting the party's backing and could not get it. And that that was the mistake, that had they had somebody with, you know, sort of the fresh and the energy to draw, energize crowds to them uh, instead of Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat in this race, who may have come off to some as a retread. You know, it's that's a that's a very interesting point. It's it's really difficult to know. And I think there's three things happening here. One, there's a structural issue here. Um, I mean, in, in some ways, it's very simple because Virginia has voted for wh- the opposite of whoever's in the White House since I think the 1990s. Every single time they vote for whoever, you know, the opposite. Um, so there's a structural thing already right off the bat. It's going to be difficult to win. The second thing is what you mentioned at the beginning, the critical race theory thing. In some ways, this is sort of the perfect storm for, for Democrats. It's, it's, it's actually a perfect issue for Republicans because, as you, as you just mentioned, there's nothing to cancel. So whenever Democrats respond to it, and McAuliffe did, he, he had a bunch of ads mocking in some ways what Youngkin was saying about, you know, this is not happening. This is not in the schools. But by saying this, most people are not paying it. Most people don't know what critical race theory is, right? Most parents. And again, to remind your listeners, most people do not care about politics to follow it that closely. What they hear is, you know, bits and pieces here and there. And so what Youngkin was, I think, getting or, or what he got about education is the malaise that people felt about their local schools, right? Whether it's CRT or something else, it doesn't have to be, right? It, I mean, critical race theory is not being taught, but, it, but people have this vague idea that there's something wrong with the schools, and so they, you know, that was the second thing. And then the third thing, mentioning the issue about um, the candidate, uh, if whenever people lose, it's always, well, if we would have gotten somebody else. I do think that in some ways, having a, a more progressive or a, a fresher face would have been preferable, but then they would have had, they would have come with their own problems, right? Uh, McCollum had a very high voter ID and he was a decent governor. I mean, he I don't remember the exact approval ratings he left with, but he did not leave with with terrible ratings at all. I, I think he was relatively popular. Uh, so, you know, so it's just you have to to go with one or the other in terms of, of weighing this, these issues. And and I don't know. I don't know that uh, that a, a, another candidate would have won because of all these other things that I mentioned. Uh, and in some ways, they, they might have if that person, if the new candidate, you know, that was a fresh face would have lost. Then what would we have said? We would have said, you know, like how awful, like, see, we should have gone with the safe candidate and so on and so forth. So it's just very difficult to say. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are three of the mass politics profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Louise Jimenez of UMass Boston, and Rob DeLeo of Bentley University. We're talking about the latest political news you need to know. All right. Well, in New York a newly elected mayor and also part of this collective of historic wins by people of color, Eric Adams. Here's newly elected mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, speaking after his win. You just fuel me every day. And let me tell you the uniqueness about the fuel that it's a Shakespearean tragedy that many of you don't know. It doesn't matter. If you are in Borough Park in Hasidic community, if you're in Flatbush in the Korean community, if you're in Sunset Park in the Chinese community, if you're in Rockaway, if you are in Queens in the Dominican community, Washington Heights, all of you have that power to fuel us. 
We are so divided right now. And we're missing the beauty of our diversity. So he is a former New York City police captain. Um, I thought it was interesting that the New York Times referred to him as an attention-grabbing persona (laughs) with a keen focus on (laughs) racial justice, which is interesting. He's had a long career in public life, and he's now the 110th mayor of New York and the second black mayor in the city's history. Uh, There was a lot said about him in the primary because he ran across some very definitive progressives, and they all lost to him, and he's a much more of a centrist, and that is the reason many gave for his victory. How do you see it, um, Rob? Yeah, I mean, I see this as really a, a, a fascinating contrast to what we saw happen here in Boston, where he's sort of running on a, on a much more centrist uh, agenda, obviously, uh, than a Michelle Wu. But I think, you know, in the in the New York case, you know, this was a race where law and order seemed to really fit squarely uh, into the agendas of uh, both Adams and his his opponent. And so it's not surprising to me that given his background uh, and given that he's more of a centrist on on these issues, that he was able to find traction with voters on them. I would note, uh, Louise, that he made it clear that he is not for, quote, defunding the police. That's another <laughs> of these catchphrases that, you know, just what what the what the proponents of said defunding the police wanted is police reform not so much defunding but that's another conversation anyway that i'm told by many is also what pushed him over the edge how do you read that yeah exactly i it, it, we come back to the same issue right what people are hearing what people don't follow very closely the whatever the details nuances of what the arguments are and they just hear defund the police and so Okay, well, I don't want that, right? So they they vote for people who think who they think are going to be uh, not that or or whatever they're afraid of, whatever. Even if it's a boogeyman, even if it's not real, it doesn't matter, right? As long as people think it's real, then it's real. Um, with Eric Adams, I, I I did find him. I mean, beyond the law and order, um, he talked a lot about, or I saw he was talking about a lot the transportation, uh, which is a big issue in in New York. Uh, and even though I, you know, he, he didn't mention, uh, like he was the opposite of Michelle Wu in terms of climate related or, or bringing this to the green new deal and and that sort of thing. I think him talking about the improving of transportation in New York also, I think this comes back to this hyper-localized issues that are very important to voters. And I think that was the other reason why he was able to win. Um, I would add that, uh, before you comment, Aaron, that in Minneapolis, where George Floyd was killed, murdered, voters rejected a measure to replace the Minneapolis Police Department because that was what was on the ballot. They were just going to completely replace it, similar to what New Jersey has done or one community in New Jersey has done. Um, and they uh, elected to do something different. Let me just play this clip of Minnesota police chiefs commenting on the vote. And before you comment again on Eric Adams and this as well. You know, what we do out here is life and death when conditions are the best they can be. This kind of lunacy needs to stop. And we believe that we are an absolutely essential and necessary component of public safety. And when an ordinance like this is proposed, again, it delegitimizes the work that we do every day to make our communities safe. We've got a national crisis going on with recruiting, and all of us are in that right now. We can get back to the conversations of reform and what's best for the profession and ultimately for our communities. 
Just want to point out that lots of voters are looking for reform, and they thought this was the best way to get there. So they're still working toward reform in Minneapolis. But that was perhaps part of what uh, catapulted Eric Adams into his new role as mayor. Aaron. I think that's right. Um, you know, defund the police, whether you, regardless of how you feel about that, the phrase itself just um, has backfired. It's backfired because it's uh, uh, the context it's rooted in and the history of racism, et cetera. But nonetheless, that's what's going on. And Eric Adams getting elected, what you just played uh, there in Minneapolis, I, I, I think speaks to, we talk a lot and I love talking a lot about the show of uh, different groups in Boston, different group cleavages that matter for politics. Age matters. You talk about young people in politics quite a bit. Um, one thing that's interesting in this policing issue is that older Black Americans don't want to defund the police. That, you know, many, not all, of course, live in communities that um, they want policing to be there, while also obviously critiquing the murder of uh, unarmed Black young people. But I, I think part of what you're seeing there is there is an age gradation amongst Black individuals and other groups uh, about this idea of uh, reforming the police versus defunding the police. And so somebody like an Eric Adams, I think, gets to the fore because he's he's maybe no one's dream candidate, but he's palatable to a lot of constituencies. He's not a radical. The police can say at least he was one of us. Black individuals and people of color in the city can say, at least he, he has the socialization. He has had the experiences of what it's like not to be, you know, the dominant white guy in the room. So um, I think the age gradations and the age differences on policing reform get lost in um, the discussion. And I know there's good sociologists doing work on this. Mm. And I just want to point out that we've talked about Michelle Wu and Eric Adams. They're part of not a sweep but an interesting trend across the, the country. Cincinnati elected Aftab Puraval as its first Asian-American mayor. Winsome Sears is the first black woman, she's a Republican and a Trump supporter, to be Virginia's lieutenant governor. So you have Glenn Youngkin as governor, and then she is the lieutenant governor. So that should be interesting to watch. Abdullah Hamoud becomes the first Arab-American and Muslim mayor of Dearborn, Michigan, which is a community that has one of the largest Arab communities in the U.S., so you would think that would have happened before. Tyron Garner will be the first black mayor of Kansas City, Kansas. Alvin Bragg is Manhattan's new district attorney, the first black person to hold the job. And there is a new black mayor of Pittsburgh, Ed Ganey. Um, and also Cleveland. <laughs> oh, oh, yep, Justin yeah. Bibb. I had oh, a lot of former right. students working on that campaign. So, oh. um, as Louise can tell you, this is one of the few times uh, Cleveland and Pittsburgh are getting along <laughs> in both <laughs> <Okay>. electing. <laughs> wow. Um, this uh, there's another guy, Bruce Harrell, who was the uh, the first Asian American, I guess, and second Black person to lead Seattle. That's interesting across the board in communities, as you pointed out, that people weren't thinking of, but. Yet uh, folks of color rose to the top. A lot of them, it seems to me, have been in these communities for a long time. And it seems like it it just uh, bubbled up finally. Um, and it speaks to me about something, the the importance of the electoral map and the electoral college. The, the Democrats are making these gains and having these historic first in cities 
but states like Virginia, states like Texas that were trending purple are staying red or going back to red. So it, it really also speaks to, I think, the geographic distribution of where, or it reminds us of the geographic distribution of where Democrats um, live. They are making major changes in city. They are willing to vote for candidates that aren't just white guys. But uh, that to see that happen at the state level has been decidedly more difficult for Democrats. Well, that it's interesting because that points to uh, a census report, recent census report that noted that the white population was shrinking, not shrinking as much as shifting to multiracial identities. That was the piece that was really interesting to me. So the number of people who identified as belonging to two or more races tripled from 9 million people in 2010 to 33.8 in 2020, and they account for 10% of the population. What do you all think, how will this impact voters, voter trends? This is very interesting to me. I'll start with you, Louise. Well, you know, uh, I talk about race a lot in my classes and, of course, centered around Latino identity, which itself is a complicated racial mix of different people that, you know, with different colors of or skin colors identifying as Latinos. And I can tell you from the Latino experience that is very diff- difficult to predict one way or the other, because what it means to be Latino for one person might not mean the same thing for someone else. So this issue about white people or, or people that had previously said they were white who are now saying they are biracial in some way might not necessarily mean across the board that people will behave one way or another. Instead, it's, it's a very personalized kind of identification, which, you know, again, and some people might lead to some political behavior and to others differently. But regardless, I think one issue that is interesting historically as we go from the 1900s all the way to now, is that it used to be a very black and white discussion in this country, right? Mm. With black yeah. or white. And, and now it's, it's more nuanced. And in some ways, I think that's a healthier thing. That's healthier because people can, uh, there's, there's more individual expression, I suppose. But also, I hope, my hope is that it also means that people can have more empathy for everyone uh, as people change their perceptions or reassess their own uh, identification. So that's, I think that's the upside. The downside is that, well, <laughs> that that might not happen and that whiteness or what has been centered, uh, that has centered this uh, in this country for so long continues to be that people just shift. Uh, but, you know, they're still centering whiteness. Hmm. I also want to note that as of this taping, we now have confirmation that Phil Murphy, the governor who was running in an extremely tight race against the Republican Jack Citarelli, won literally hundreds of votes difference, not thousands, hundreds of votes difference. So how to take a look at that with the trend of Glenn Youngkin? Again, Rob, I believe that was a serious COVID disagreement in the community and the way he handled it. That that caused that closeness in the race. Yeah, I, I th- and I agree with you. I think we have a a trend emerging in this discussion, and that is that you know all politics was really local, uh, especially in some of these close races, and you know it, it was it was partially COVID. 
um, th there was a, a lot of that race also centered on on um, addressing the the state's um, tax rates. Uh, if you remember, uh, Murphy made comments earlier in the year suggesting that if you didn't like the the property tax and tax rates in in New Jersey, then maybe it wasn't the state for you. And so Cittarelli actually ran on that sort of platform of this is an individual who's. Uh, not sensitive uh, to the burden of these high property taxes in New Jersey. Once again, not unlike education, a very localized issue that in an off election year is going to get people to the polls and is going to mobilize them. Well, Aaron, O'Brien, you get the last word. What should we be taking away from all that happened on Election Day, both nationally and locally? <laughs> uh, that's a big question. Um, uh, in some ways, I think, like, chill out, everybody. <laughs> like, because of uh, what Rob just said, you know, all politics is local. Trump wasn't all the energy in the room uh, uh, when people went out and voted. Turnout was incredibly low. A majority of people living in the United States said nothing last week. And so uh, I think it, let's not overlearn the lesson of New Jersey being tight, of, um, you know, Virginia switching. I, I, I just, I really think that it is, this is not the greatest answer I've ever given, but I really think it is too early to tell. The United States is nuanced. Um, we are uh, really improving in terms of the diversity of the individuals that we elect to office. But it's also that we are ingrained in past patterns, issues of race and localism are always a part of our politic. But I think it's dangerous to try to say there are major lessons for the Democratic Party or the Republican Party nationally based on what happened in an off-year election during COVID coming hopefully off of COVID. Okay, well, we'll leave it there for now, and I'll be interested to see what you guys have to say a few months down the road. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Aaron O'Brien is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. She is also co-editor with Gerald Duquette of the book The Politics of Massachusetts Exceptionalism, Reputation Meets Reality. Louise Jimenez is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. And Rob DeLeo is an associate professor of public policy at Bentley University. You can read more of their analysis on their blog, masspoliticsprofs.org. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at gbh.org, news under the radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubley and engineered by Dave Goodman. Sarah Kaplan is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>